Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. The United States Supreme Court guaranteed a constitutional right to abortion in its 1973 decision in the Roe v. Wade case. The court subsequently overturned this decision in the 2022 case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. For the half-century in which abortion was a protected right in the United States, it was the subject of countless lawsuits and political debates. And those lawsuits and battles aren't going away anytime soon because views on this subject are so polarized. Some people believe abortion should never happen under any circumstances. Others think it should always be an option. And yet others think it should be an option, but only under limited circumstances. I do not purport to know how to resolve this debate, but I do know that debates about abortion always seem to be full of myths and misconceptions, which is why a better understanding of abortion is really crucial. I also think that no matter where you are on the political spectrum and what your beliefs are about abortion rights, everyone would like to see fewer people experiencing situations where this deeply personal and sometimes really stressful and difficult choice emerges. But the path to get there does not run through legal bans and restrictions. Rather, it runs through comprehensive sex education and easier access to contraceptives. So today's episode is going to be a data and research-driven discussion about abortion fact versus fiction. I am joined by Dr. Rachel Needle, a licensed psychologist and certified sex therapist. She is the founder of the Whole Health Psychological Center, as well as the Advanced Mental Health Training Institute and the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. This is going to be a very important conversation. So stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been investigating issues of sex, gender, and relationships for 75 years. To commemorate the Institute's 75th anniversary, they will be hosting events all throughout the year, including art exhibitions, research lectures, a book club, dance performances, and much more. Visit their website at kinseyinstitute.org or follow them on social media for the latest details. You can follow them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Kinsey Institute. Hi, Rachel, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So we have a really important and timely topic to discuss today, which is abortion. Now, being in the world of sex research and education, this is all anyone has been talking about for the last several months, ever since that draft Supreme Court decision was leaked that ultimately became their final say on the matter. This topic has also been all over the news, all over social media. And one of the things I've seen is that there seem to be a lot of misconceptions about abortion. And one of them is this idea that women are primarily seeking abortion as a form of birth control. 
So a lot of people seem to be under this impression that women are just going out, having sex, not using contraceptives, and then just treating abortion as their main method of birth control. But that is just so far removed from the truth. So let's start with the question of what are the main reasons why abortions are sought in the first place? What's the truth there? Yeah, so women seek abortions for a variety of reasons. The most common reason is that they're not ready for a child. Uh, other reasons that are are up there as well include not not being able to afford to have a child at the time. Some are just simply done having children. They've they've had the children that they want to have. Also, for some, they think it will interfere with their education or occupation. Many are there are also many that are victims of rape or they find out that there are fetal health problems. And for some, it's just not safe for them to carry a pregnancy. But there are a variety of reasons. Yeah, and that lines up with all the research I've seen, which suggests that reasons for pursuing abortion are many and varied. And in terms of not being ready for children or not wanting additional children, those are definitely up there in some of the other studies I've seen. But there's also the fact of being in an unstable relationship, being too young for kids, having personal health problems. You know, there are all kinds of reasons why. And we also see that most women who seek abortions have not had them previously. And at least half of them say that they used contraception around the time that they became pregnant, which means that a lot of abortions are sought because contraception failed. So for people who just say, well, if you want to prevent abortion, you know, just use a condom. Well, we know that condoms don't always work. And so that's not a solution to this particular issue. So let's talk about some other abortion myths and misconceptions. And one of them concerns the morning after pill, which some people actually call the abortion pill because they think it causes abortion. So what's the truth there? Yeah, so plan B is very different from medication abortion. And I think that the reason they're confused is sometimes that's intentionally conflated for political reasons. But to make clear, plan B is known as emergency contraception or the morning after pill. It prevents pregnancy from developing very different from medication abortion or medical abortion, which is a method by which someone takes two pills to end their pregnancy. So one is a birth control method and one is an abortifacient. And so also the way I talk about this in my textbook on human sexuality, because I talk about both emergency contraception and abortion in it, is that when you're talking about emergency contraception or plan B, basically what that does is it will prevent a fertilized egg from implanting in the uterus. But if a fertilized egg is already implanted, it won't disrupt that. And so in that way, it is not the same as the abortion pill. These are two different things. And yes, it is a common misconception. And I do think people tend to intentionally conflate a lot of these things in the abortion debate because there is so much there that is political. But that's, you know, a whole other podcast. Now, another misconception is when during pregnancy are abortions sought. So some people seem to be under the impression that most abortions occur only during late stage pregnancy. But that's really far removed from the truth, right? Absolutely. The majority of abortions, about two-thirds of abortions, occur within eight weeks of pregnancy or earlier. And that lines up with what I've seen as well, that you know, about nine in 10 or so happen in the first trimester, more than half occur in the first eight weeks. You see the numbers are a little bit different depending on the particular source or study that you're consulting, but the vast majority are happening very early term in pregnancy, and it's actually pretty uncommon for them to happen in that later term. 
Now, there's also this popular idea, especially among many lawmakers who have passed abortion restrictions, which is that abortion is this really dangerous thing for women's health. And I think that's why a lot of laws that have been passed in recent years have required abortion providers to have hospital admitting privileges. But the reality is that if you look at the data, pregnancy is actually more dangerous to a woman's health than abortion is. So can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So a lot of the restrictive policies, as you mentioned, are based on the myth that abortion is unsafe and is complicated, but it's actually just the opposite. It is an extremely safe procedure. It is safer than dental extraction. It is safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. So staying pregnant carries a greater risk of death for the pregnant person than having an abortion does. And so, you know, preventing people from accessing abortion doesn't decrease the amount of abortions that are done. It just makes it more unsafe when it's a very safe procedure. And so also, as I've discussed with previous guests on the podcast, pregnancy is actually the most dangerous time in a woman's life uh, in many cases, because there's all kinds of things that can go wrong with a pregnancy. There can be bleeding, there can be ectopic pregnancy, miscarriage. There are so many different things that can happen. And that's all independent of what can happen during childbirth, which can be dangerous in and of itself, right? And we know throughout history, and especially before the advent of modern medicine, that childbirth in particular was a really dangerous time for women. Now, certainly with modern medicine, we've decreased a lot of these risks associated with pregnancy and childbirth, and you can catch a lot of the early warning signs of potential health issues in a pregnancy earlier than you could in the past. But pregnancy still does carry these risks to maternal health, and it is, on average, more risky more dangerous to someone's health than abortion if you're looking at the science and data and research. Now, we could go on and on about abortion myths. And, you know, one of the other ones, for example, is this idea that abortions are becoming more and more common. And it is true that the rate did bump up a little bit during the pandemic, but the overall trend is that they've actually decreased considerably since the 1980s. And pre-pandemic, they actually reached a record low. So abortion has actually been on the decline for several decades. And that also coincides with a drop in the fertility rate. So we're having fewer births that are happening. It's also coincided with a rise in the use of long-lasting reversible contraceptives. So all of these things are tied together in some ways. But one other myth I really want to talk about with regard to abortion is the psychological impact of it. So there are some people who talk about what they call post-abortion syndrome, and they argue that abortion really hurts a woman's mental health. But what's the truth there? What is the psychological impact of abortion? Well, let's start with the most commonly reported impact of abortion is actually relief. So, you know, and even the APA, the American Psychological Association, has stated that social scientists have known for years that the availability of legal abortion is not associated with long-term psychological distress in women who use it. So typically what we find is it's not associated with long-term psychological sequelae for those that are struggling. Um, it's usually for a few weeks and that there are factors that will impact those that are more likely to struggle and with feelings such as, you know, anxiety, depression, stress after the procedure. And that is usually tied to what their mental health was like 
prior to the procedure. So that hasn't been teased out. So it is this post-abortion syndrome. There's no research behind it. And the research that has claimed to back that up or support that has actually, you know, been very confounded and not sound. So the majority of research finds that with protective factors, especially that there are not negative mental health indicators in women who've had abortions. And that's consistent with the research that I've seen. You know, the vast majority of women who have an abortion report positive outcomes like relief. There aren't these mental health issues or struggles that are frequently claimed. Yes, there are some women who are depressed afterwards or who experience other negative psychological health outcomes. But as you mentioned, your mental health state prior to abortion is really important in terms of predicting those outcomes. And so that raises the question of, was it the abortion or was there some pre-existing psychological distress that we're talking about here? You know, abortion occurs in a stressful context, right? So it's hard to tease out those psychological effects. It's, you know, the pregnancy is either wanted or unwanted. And the reason for the abortion experience contributes to how people feel afterwards, as well as factors such as, you know, history, including how, how much support they have, which is often mitigated by how they're people close to them feel about abortion in general. So those that have had those sort of negative messages about abortion and not being okay, or have been even raised feeling themselves, it's not okay. I mean, I've heard that so many times having worked in a number of, of centers, women who come in and, you know, one of the first things they say is, you know, I don't believe in this. <laughs> Yet they're there accessing and using that right that they were given to, you know, access safe and, and reproductive health care. I appreciate you bringing all of that up because I think the broader context in which an abortion happens is really important in terms of talking about what is the psychological impact of this. And some of the data that I've seen has looked at what is the religious affiliation of women who are seeking abortions. And some of those studies have found that somewhere between 14, 15% actually identify as evangelical Christians and somewhere around a quarter identify as Catholic. And so you may have people who are seeking abortions who have these very strongly held religious beliefs against abortion, but they're seeking that procedure anyway. And because of that psychological conflict, for them, that might create some level of distress. But again, is that the procedure or is it really more about the moral conflict that they're experiencing in that case? You know, we know moral conflicts arise a lot when we're talking about sexuality and sexual behavior. And so that could be part of the story here. But as you mentioned, you know, that whole broader context, you know, what is my family or friends position on this particular issue? And if they find out about it, how are they going to treat me? You know, so that could be part of the story here in terms of these effects as well. And so if you look at the data, the vast majority of people are reporting relief or positive outcomes, but there are some people who who do struggle, who maybe go through a clinical depressive episode. And there are some people who like to pretend that that minority doesn't exist at all, in part because they have a vested interest or belief in why abortion should be legal and accessible and so forth. But I think whenever we're talking about any medical procedure, you know, for example, if you're talking about transgender persons who undergo gender affirmation surgery, you know, there's a parallel there in the sense that the vast majority of them report 
positive outcomes. They might experience relief and better psychological adjustment. But there are some people who regret the decision, just as there are some people who regret the decision to have an abortion, some people who regret the decision to have any medical procedure. But the fact that there is a minority that might experience negative outcomes doesn't mean that that procedure shouldn't be available at all, right? Because if we use that as the threshold for saying, what procedure should people be allowed to access? Well, we wouldn't be able to access almost anything because you know you never have 100% outcomes with any particular treatment or medical approach. Absolutely. So let's talk about abortion bans. There are a lot of people who seem to think that the way to end abortion is just to ban it and that that's going to totally stop people from going out and seeking this procedure. But what's the truth there? What do we know about banning abortion? Does that actually prevent people or stop abortions from happening? It does not. It actually does not change the number of women that seek abortion services, but instead it makes it less safe and delays care and puts a woman's health at risk. So, you know, we look at like other countries, those with less restrictive and more restrictive laws about abortion. And we see that abortion rates are actually four times higher in low-income countries where abortion is prohibited than in high-income countries where it's broadly legal. So, you know, we know from the past too that people are not less likely to seek abortion services. They're just less likely to be safe and they are more likely to put themselves at risk while doing so and to endure unsafe and stressful situations. And I also think about population like those in violent relationships. And bans like this make this even less safe for women who are in violent relationships and domestic violence relationships. I think everything you mentioned there is spot on in terms of the data and research that I've seen, you know, where bans just they don't reduce the number of unintended pregnancies or they don't reduce the number of situations where a pregnancy happens that becomes a threat to the mother's health, right? It doesn't change any of those facts or circumstances. So it makes sense that it's not going to change the rate at which people are seeking an abortion. But as you mentioned, it does lead people to pursue riskier methods of having an abortion. So what are some of the kinds of things that are less safe that people might be doing if they're seeking abortions outside of the healthcare system? Are we talking about importing drugs from other countries where they don't know exactly what they're getting? What is it that makes it unsafe? So there's that. That's one thing. It's another thing is trying to do it themselves in any way that they have heard or you know read about. It is seeking services in places that are not sterile and that are less safe, maybe from people that aren't Physicians who've been trained in this area, but in people's homes with physicians that haven't been trained or people that aren't even physicians. I I think about the movie Dirty Dancing. And while it's not the scene that we think about the most, you know, the point, the reason that baby is dancing in that in the movie is because Penny got pregnant and wasn't able to access abortion services. So she had a we call back alley in the past abortion. It was unsafe and she got sick from it. And, you know, when people, I think, realize that reality that this puts so many people's lives at risk and in danger, I think that really shifts the terms of this debate, right? Because we're not talking about getting rid of abortion by banning it, but it is making it less safe, more dangerous, and people will die as a result of it. And some of the predictions are like pregnancy-related deaths. Like if the United States were to ban abortion or in the areas that they have, pregnancy-related deaths will increase, right? Because they're 
pregnancies are riskier, as we talked about, than safe abortion. So if you ban them all, we see that death rate increase, and especially with non-Hispanic Black women. So there is that racial disparity as well. And the other downstream side effect of all of this that we've heard talked about pretty extensively in the media is that a lot of doctors increasingly seem to be afraid of treating ectopic pregnancies and miscarriages because sometimes the primary treatment that is used for a miscarriage that is in process is actually the abortion pill, but it wasn't a viable pregnancy anyway. But the concern on the doctor's part is that sometimes miscarriage and abortion are medically indistinguishable. And if you provided this drug to a patient, is there the documentation or proof that this was a miscarriage and not an abortion? And so there's that concern about liability on the part of doctors, which is then ultimately posing a threat to women's health who need this urgent care when they're in the process of miscarriage or they have an incomplete miscarriage or they have an ectopic pregnancy. And so increasingly, I'm hearing much more discussion about all of this. And it's, I think, one of these unintended side effects of a lot of the folks who are pushing for abortion bans is what does this mean for treatment of these other health issues? And if it's making it harder to access treatment for miscarriage and ectopic pregnancy, that's a real disaster in terms of women's health, right? Well, yeah. And the unknown is causing even more problems, as you mentioned, you know, things like in vitro, the rape of a 10-year-old girl. We recently saw the woman in Texas who was having a miscarriage, but because it was thought to potentially be intentional or they weren't sure, they sent her home because they were scared to treat her. So you're seeing this fear and this, you know, common theme of like, they, people don't know what to do. Nurses, doctors don't know what they're allowed to do, what they're not, who's going to report them. So out of fear, they're, they're not treating. And that's putting women's health in an increased risk. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, banning abortion isn't the path to reducing abortion. So if you're really serious about wanting to reduce abortion, the first thing you should be supporting is comprehensive sex education and better access to contraceptives, right? So can you speak a bit about this issue? Absolutely. So you named, you know, two of the most important things, comprehensive sex education that's inclusive, that will include things like teaching consent. We need consent to reduce sexual violence. Um, We want to make sure that people have access to contraception and access for people that can't afford typically. So it needs to be affordable. Low-income families, especially, and younger people like teens have a harder time accessing contraception. And these are the people that are more likely, right, to seek abortion services. Things like universal health care or even the reasons behind abortions, right? One is that people feel like they won't be able to afford having children, which for a lot of people is very true. So things like offering affordable health care can be helpful in reducing abortions or the need for them. And in terms of the better access to contraceptives, the most highly effective contraceptives tend to be the hormonal ones. And the hormonal ones are harder to access. You can't just walk into a store and pick it up and go home with it. You need to visit a healthcare provider first, get a prescription, which means you also have to have healthcare coverage. And does your healthcare coverage cover these particular services? You know, there are all kinds of barriers and roadblocks to accessing the forms of contraception that are 99% or more effective. So that 
ends up putting people in the situation of having to rely more on some of the less effective methods. Like I know we talk about condoms. Condoms are great in terms of STI protection. They can be great in terms of pregnancy prevention, but people make a lot of mistakes and errors when it comes to using condoms. And if you look at the typical use effectiveness rate for condoms when it comes to preventing unintended pregnancy, it's only about 82%, which means that close to one in five women over the course of a year who are using condoms as their primary form of birth control are going to become pregnant, right? So when you think about it in those terms, there are some risks, you know, with, with condoms if you're relying on that as your primary form of birth control because you really have to be using it correctly and consistently every single time in order for you to obtain that optimal level of protection. So that's part of the reason why we need greater access to the highly effective reversible contraceptives. And if you look at some of the studies that have come out, when you provide sex education about contraception and you give women their choice of contraceptive, they'll often go for these highly effective reversible contraceptives like the implant or an IUD or birth control pills. And what you see in some of these studies where they've instituted these interventions is that they reduce the abortion rate in that local area by about 70% compared to the national rate, right? So there's this huge reduction in abortions that happens when you provide comprehensive sex ed and easier access to those highly effective contraceptives. Absolutely. And teach, as you mentioned, like people often aren't using them correctly, going back to the need for comprehensive sex education, because we need to teach people how to use the condoms. And I've taught undergrad uh, human sexuality for many, many years. And that's one of the things that oftentimes we teach and have them practice, but that needs to be happening way before they get to the undergraduate level. So the need for comprehensive sex education is really important. And this has me thinking about another section in my human sexuality textbook where I talk about some of the research on women who have experienced unintended pregnancies who did not use contraception when they became pregnant. And they asked these women, why didn't they use contraception in that particular case? And the single most common reason that emerges is that they didn't think they could get pregnant. So I look at something like that as being really telling of how we're failing adolescents when it comes to providing sex education. Because if you don't fully understand your own body and when you can and can't get pregnant, right, that, that's just a failure of the sex education system. So that is so, so important in all of this. Now, we're running short on time, but one other question I have for you on this topic is what you think the overturning of Roe v. Wade means for the future of sex and relationships. So as a sex therapist, where do you see this going? Yeah, I think that it's going to have a huge impact. I think that, you know, at this time we are in a reproductive health care crisis and there is so much turmoil and chaos for women and you're finding people, you know, really scared to put themselves at risk and and wondering what will this mean for me what will this mean for you know people i care about potential children do i even want to have sex or am i going to explore other options just to be safe so i think it it really is having an impact on both how we feel psychologically about ourselves you know not having this bodily autonomy is you know really impacting people emotionally and psychologically and also the fear of that has been instilled in us. So taking us back to before 1973, you know, when when abortion became legal is impacting, I think, not just women, but people all over the country. And, you know, that's consistent with what I've seen in some recent data that I've collected about 
how people are thinking about sex in a time when abortion is no longer a constitutional right in the United States. And you have a significant number of people, particularly women, who say that they're afraid to have sex or they're afraid of becoming pregnant. And I've seen some people on social media who they're kind of celebrating this, right? They're like, great, you know, the kids aren't going to be having sex anymore. We don't need to worry about it. And it's like, you know, that's not the right approach. We know from decades of research on sex education in the United States that fear-based approaches to sex ed just don't work. Scaring people away from sex is just not a good idea. And when people are too scared to have sex, they miss out on all the benefits that sex can provide as well. We know that sex is good for our physical health. It's good for our mental health. It can provide a sense of meaning in life. And in the context of an ongoing, enduring sexual and romantic relationship, it's such an important part of social and emotional support. And so if people are sort of cut off from accessing all of those benefits, that can have some negative implications for them and for their health. So I don't think we should be celebrating that people are afraid of sex because there are some, again, unintended consequences of this that might be bad for us in the long term. And we're already in what some people have called a sex recession, right? People today are having less sex with fewer partners than they were in the past. And you already have a lot of young adults who have not become sexually active yet. And so I think there is some concern that this is just going to push sexual development further and further off. And what are the implications of that for your social and emotional development? So I think there's still a lot that we don't know about this and that we've just barely scratched the surface in terms of what the effects of this are likely to be. Absolutely. So thank you so much for this important conversation, Rachel. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your workshops? Yes. Thanks so much for having me. DrRachel.com is my personal website. ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com is the website where you will find information about any continuing education workshops, as well as certification trainings or our PhD in clinical sexology training. You can follow me on Facebook at Dr. Rachel or on Instagram at Dr. Rachel Needle or reach me at drrachelneedle at gmail.com. Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.